This week on Policy, Guns and Money's Bigger Picture series, Dr Alex Bristow, Deputy Director of Defence, Strategy and National Security at ASPE, speaks to Dr Ewan Graham, Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security at IISS. They discuss the security pact between China and Solomon Islands and its implications for security in the South Pacific. In their conversation, they consider China's objectives and how great power competition might play out in the region. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. I'm Alex Bristow and I'm very glad to be here with Dr Ewan Graham from the International Institute of Strategic Studies Asia, which is based in Singapore. Ewan, we decided we're going to spend today's session talking mainly about the China-Solomons Agreement, which has obviously leaked recently and is much in the, the media here in Australia around the election. Before we sort of dive into some of the details and the implications, maybe we could start by just actually refreshing memories about what has happened. Sure. Well, thank you, Alex. It's great to be back in Australia and participating in ASPE's podcast series. So a very brief recap for those who are not aware. In April, reports surfaced that Solomon Islands government had concluded a security deal with China. That was confirmed by the Chinese foreign ministry. So we do know that it is a government to government agreement. We don't know what's in it. However, there was an apparently leaked version of the initial draft of that agreement, which made its way into the public domain in late March and set off a stir. And there was a flurry of diplomatic activity from Australia and others in an attempt to dissuade Haniara from concluding that agreement, which unfortunately did not succeed. And the agreement is now unfolding amidst a lot of speculation about what it will involve. The lead question on most people's minds is the potential for a Chinese military base or other kind of military facility to appear in the Solomon Islands and what the implications are for Australia and the United States and their defence planning. Maybe that's a good place to start. We've heard from Prime Minister Sogavare that the the outcome is not going to be a military base. Can we take sucker from from that? I think Prime Minister Morrison here in Australia has referred to it as a red line. Do we think that this will inevitably progress to a military base or is that not where this is probably going to go? I think nothing's inevitable and politics is fluid in in the southwest Pacific and Prime Minister Sogavari still has to present his case to the Pacific neighbourhood with the upcoming summit of the Pacific Island Forum next month, largely in in frame. It's not just about the high-end potential of a military base, however. The trigger for this was the violence in Honiara in November last year, which then precipitated an Australian military and and police deployment, which was welcomed by Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands at the time. But in the wake of that, there was a subsequent agreement for China to bring in police training mission. And that has also muddied the water somewhat whether the agreement between China and the Sonom lines is going to cover internal security functions. And that may be uppermost on Sogavare's mind. Well, just to, to sort of stay perhaps with the, the worst case scenario, just for, for a bit before we look at the internal ramifications, if this were to 
become a military base. Uh, what would the implications of that be? I mean, for a start, do you think that would have any military effect in, in the event of a war? Would it be survivable? Or are we looking at scenarios short of war where it would really have its utility? Well, the first thing to say is that there's an element of back to the future here. The Solomon Islands is in most people's mind because of the Second World War history in which Japan established a series of military bases with the objective of interdicting sea and air communications between Australia and the United States. And that then resulted in the Battle of Guadalcanal and the reoccupation of the Solomon Islands by the United States with support from Australia. Geography doesn't change. It's still in a strategic location. And that basic potential for the Solomon Islands, given where it is, neither too far nor too close from Australia, and astride its northeastern approaches, it's in a, a tricky place that Australia will obviously have to factor into its defence planning because the lines of enforcement, uh, reinforcement in a conflict would continue to flow from the United States, and for that matter from the United States to other parts in, in Northeast Asia, where ships, possibly submarines, potentially aircraft, that are based in the Solomon Islands could be used to interdict those supply lines. But as you said at the end, I think the perhaps more subtle challenge is short of an armed conflict uh, in the Southwest Pacific, a base can still be uh, useful from a variety of purposes, including intelligence gathering and to establish a, a presence. And that presence will also be instrumental in extending China's influence through naval diplomacy, defense diplomacy, as many other countries that have grown large and, and acquired global interests have, have done in, in the past. And that is, I think, a more insidious risk for Australian influence in, in the region, because it won't be a, an existential challenge to Australia, but nonetheless, it'll be one that reinforces China's already dominant economic presence and it will increasingly, I think, be clear that China sees itself as having a security role uh, and a security presence in the so-called second island chain, although this is some way distant from the Chinese mainland. Great. Just on the back to the future point, I, I do recall when I first came to Canberra about five years ago, people told me that... I think that the reason Canberra is here is to keep it out of the, the range of, of Russian naval guns. That's probably uh, apocryphal and rather than accurate, but uh, well, so far inland. Uh, and that the, the Soviet Union apparently tried to put a, a military base, I think it's probably Vanuatu, in the, in the 1980s. So I guess we have had these sorts of scares before that there may be uh, hostile militaries coming down the coast. Well, and a lot of the fortifications that you see around Sydney Harbour were developed and funded because Australia then part of the British Empire was preoccupied with a Russian threat in the middle of the 19th century. There may have been some basis to that. I think that what sets China apart is, is its scale and clarity of, of ambition. And I don't mean to put China through a, uh, an exaggerated or unnecessarily hostile lens. I think it is clear, however, given the build-up of China's navy in particular, which is now already the largest in hull numbers in the world. Uh, but if we look at the investment in, in logistics, in ocean-going platforms, 
that there is a real potential for China to become a blue water power and the Pacific at some point is going to have to establish a strategic perimeter um, that divides the interests of the United States from those of China. And it may be that China has an ambition to set that perimeter substantially forward of what people's assumption has until been until relatively recently. Well, I think we're naturally segueing onto China's intentions. Obviously, it's always a mugs game to, to, to guess what Xi Jinping is thinking, but let's try anyway. But if we can get some insight, perhaps, I, I am holding my hand a document, which is, I think, something Neville Chamberlain once said. This is yesterday's uh, Australian Financial Review, an interview with the new ambassador in Canberra, new Chinese ambassador in Canberra, Xiao Qian, in which he is reassuring Australia that there is nothing to fear from this pact. The um, the, the basis of bilateral relations would be the, the most important thing and, you know, that this is really about China developing its relations with the Pacific and nothing to do with Australia. Do we dismiss this out of hands or is it possible that we're reading an Australian, painting Australian lens over the top of this too much and that China actually might have motivations that, that, that run beyond poking Australia in the eye? One of the reasons that China's intentions in the Solomon Islands, I think, need to be treated seriously is the precedent that was set in the South China Sea last decade, where China moved to build up artificial islands and then put in infrastructure, which serves the basis of a forward military presence. That precedent is something that Australian policymakers at the time looked at and decided that they couldn't allow that to happen by increments in the Southwest Pacific. Therefore, it what Australia settled for, and in fact, was a de facto policy of strategic denial to China to try and give better offers to Pacific Island nations that were on the cusp of making investment deals that, that suggested a dual-use capability was in the works. The word base is also at the risk of taking us down a definitional rabbit hole, but I find it interesting that the United States avoids the use of the base word in several of the countries where it, it has significant military assets that are hosted in Asia, including Singapore. So it may be that the Chinese are looking at that, you know, from a uh, rhetorical point of view as well. Could Prime Minister Sogavari technically hold to his promise if it's not described as a base, but nonetheless is capable of supporting some expeditionary presence, be it Chinese ships or, or, or aircraft? That Maybe a, a, a battle of words that lies in store further down the, uh, the the track, but I think it's it's worth remembering that a military base in the all bells and whistles Pearl Harbor definition may not be what we end up with here, but nonetheless something that could be useful to help China support a a forward presence that gives it greater influence and also, as I mentioned before, the ability to to undertake intelligence gathering activities in the area. And let's not forget that there is also a diplomatic element to this too. The United States is clearly unhappy that this has happened, given Australia's traditional role of being the, the guardian within the alliance for this particular part of the, the world. And if Australia has allowed under its watch the PLA to establish a, a forward presence on the second island chain, that's also a significant embarrassment value. There must be a joke there somewhere about the term base being a base word, but um, I, can't, I can't quite find a pithy version of it yet. Maybe while we stick on the intentions of others before we return to Australian shores, 
Prime Minister Sogavare's aims in all this? I mean, I wonder if he's a, a great geopolitician who has big foreign policy and ambitions, or is this all about a domestic game? And, and what is that game? Well, there's a saying that all politics is local, and I think geopolitics is no exception to that. Prime Minister Sogavaria, in my view, is approaching this through a lens of regime security, in which primarily he's looking at this in terms of how does he deal with his domestic opposition, given all of the fractious politics and, and uh, unfortunate history of the Solomon Islands in recent years. China represents a, a potentially powerful source of external economic support, but also potentially it could be the, the X factor that deters any moves against him from within the Solomon Islands and gives him the resources that he needs both to defeat future no-confidence votes and potentially to stay in power beyond the scheduled election, which we know is, is potentially one of his motivations. And just staying offshore a little longer and, and, and staying in the region, the, the Pacific, I think, has consistently told the world that it doesn't want to be viewed as the stage for great power competition. It wants to be understood on its own terms. This would appear to be a move that has invited great power competition into the region. Uh, how will the rest of the Pacific react? Can they persuade the Solomon Islands to take a different course? Well, I think great power competition was already present. This has not come out of the blue. We've had a succession of reports going back at least five years of China attempting to seek an investment presence that doesn't really stack up in commercial terms on real estate that has obvious strategic value in the broader competition between China and the United States. This is a sovereign decision undertaken by the Solomon Islands and one big difference from 1941-42 when Southwest Pacific was composed uh, almost entirely of colonized nations. Now that is not the case. So for better or for worse, their fate is in their own hands. When we dig a little bit deeper at the, at the nature of the decision-making, however, I think it's worth remembering that sovereign agency can also be exercised by a narrow elite in the interests of that narrow elite, uh, who may not be thinking of the interests of the, of the larger country. And that, I think, is, is the risk given the, the very deep pockets that China is able to bring to bear uh, in these very small countries that a degree of funding for development purposes can also be put to ulterior motives, which in this grand scale of Chinese diplomacy, this is a drop in the ocean. But if the upshot is that a sovereign UN voting country, one which has already switched its diplomatic allegiance from Taipei to Beijing, then I don't think China will have second thoughts about attaching conditions to, uh, to the support that it provides. And if that support also serves the domestic security needs of a leader like Manassas so Sogevare, then both parties could live with it. I mean, I think there's a good degree of real politique that is at play here. However, China also has risk in this uh, endeavour and it could easily find itself, I think, sucked into domestic politics and potentially domestic conflict in the Solomon Islands in a way that does not serve its interests and which may lead it into a, a much more confrontational posture with Australia and, and the United States. And it may play out in much shorter term than, than China's wishes would be for a, you know, a, a long-term transition of power in which conflict is avoided. 
but in the sort of messy, chaotic political cockpit of the Solomon Islands, that could blow up if there is a Chinese policing presence uh, and if the prime minister sees China as part of his domestic Praetorian Guard, then that is, I think, a uh, it's going to be a difficult risk for, for China to, to manage. Uh, we were discussing this before the podcast as well, Ewan, and you used a term that I really like, I've written it down here, a, a domestic insecurity vortex that China may become ensnared in. I mean, I, I guess with all the focus on the military implications, the, the domestic security angle might be the one that we, we really need to to pay attention to as well. I mean, is, is this, for example, I think Oniara will host the um, the Pacific Games next year. Presumably there'll be some, you know, quite challenging security demands that those games will create. Will we see the People's Armed Police potentially on the streets of Oniara helping to um, keep everyone in line? Well, we don't know the terms of the agreement, but the policing agreement is just as significant, I think, as the potential for a uh, military base for the reasons that you've suggested. It could be the thin end of a wedge for China, not just to act on behalf of Prime Minister Sogavari, but there are ethnic Chinese Solomon Islanders. And the worst case potential there is that if there is violence directed at Chinatown, again, on a large scale, will those Chinese police stop short of protecting ethnic Chinese who they feel they have a, an extraterritorial responsibility to defend, even if they are not um, PRC passport holders. The other issue is um, Australia is not out of the picture here. Australia still has a security treaty with the Solomon Islands. The Solomon Islands doesn't have armed forces of its own, and they were welcomed onto Honiara's streets as a, uh, a peacekeeping force as, as recently as last November. So what happens if Australia is under pressure to intervene again, but Chinese forces, police, or potentially paramilitary or military, are also deployed in, in parallel? How are those two sides going to be kept apart? What's going to be the rules of engagement? What's going to be the role of armed opposition from Malaita or, or elsewhere in the Solomon Islands? I think this is a, a very, very tricky potential scenario. And again, it's one that's easier to imagine than, uh, than Chinese warships sailing off to uh, to blockade the Queensland coast. I mean, I, th- I think we have to keep this in perspective, not get overly worked up about it, especially in the febrile political atmosphere of an election campaign. But there are real security questions uh, here that do need to be um, thought about, especially with the potential for a new government coming into Canberra in a, just a few weeks' time. Our astute listeners have probably detected that we've both got British accents, Ewan. Are there any other players? I'm not necessarily thinking Britain, but are there any other players that, that should be taking a stake in the solutions here? What what can be done and, and who should Australia be working with? Well, yes, there are. The United States sent a high power delegation led by Kirk Campbell recently to Honiara, and they made a uh, an agreement to offer the Solomon Islands a, an annual dialogue, which is significant. And I don't think that would have happened absent the the China card. Japan has also been active. And I think that's helpful because it, it, it takes uh, some of the tension away from, from Australia that it's not the only finger-wagging partner on, uh, on the other end of, of the Solomon Islands relationship. You mentioned the UK. The UK, in a small way, is trying to demonstrate more interest and presence in the Indo-Pacific, including in the Southwest Pacific. And I think it was fortuitously timed that one of the new offshore patrol vessels was able to 
pass by the Solomon Islands recently and take part in an anti-illegal fishing patrol with the cooperation of the Solomon Islands uh, government. So I think that it helps demonstrate that there are alternatives. That may be the game which Prime Minister Sogavari is playing and playing successfully, one has to say, to a certain level up to this point. But I think that is, that's part of the game of geopolitics. You have to be prepared to resource your counteroffer. That counteroffer will never be resourced to the same scale as China can do. So how, was, how does one differentiate it? The obvious way is to create options that are tied to broader outcomes that serve the needs of Solomon Islands society broadly and not just simply the needs of the governing elite. I've done the Agatha Christie approach and looked at all the potential perpetrators before we come back to the one that everyone wants to hear about. What should Australia be doing next? Unusually for a general election campaign, a foreign policy issue. This agreement in the Solomon Islands has become a a major uh, source of fur flying. Earlier this morning, I was in the uh, National Press Club where I heard the the Foreign Minister Maurice Payne and, and the Shadow Foreign Minister Penny Wong exchange blows on this one. Is this... You know, is there something that the opposition would do differently? Is has has a ball been dropped, or fundamentally, has Australia done the best it can in the situation? I think it's really tricky for any Australian government to manage this situation because success may often be hidden, but failure is always visible and and highly uh, apparent. And this has been a you know, five six year game of whack a mole. It's sometimes uh, referred to, and Australia has had some successes in that. I think it gets back to your previous point about making sure that other actors are involved, not just the ex- the external actors, but the key thing is to get the Pacific neighbourhood engaged and that the messages that are landing on Oniara's doorstep are not just seen to be from the faraway powers and, and US allies. I think Prime Minister Sogavari knows how to play that game as his recent speech in the Solomon Islands Parliament attested, it's much harder for him to to uh, react the same way to pressure from Fiji or Papua New Guinea or from the Pacific Islands Forum. So I think that that requires deaf diplomacy from Australia to share its concerns and persuade its Pacific partners that this is not in their interests. and They also have agency in persuading Solomon Islands and other prospective hosts for Chinese military facilities that this is not the best path to take. Thanks, Hugh. I think we should probably uh, wrap it up about there. But I should say to interested listeners that you do have an excellent analysis that goes into a bit more detail available in the uh, IISS uh, blog. So so please do uh, have a look at that. And I think you pose a question in that analysis about what could be next, but I will allow listeners to look it up and find out. Thanks very much, Alex. And thanks to everyone for listening. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.